All right, I want you to talk back to me this morning. When you uh, think about Christmas, what emotions uh, do you think of? What word association would you play? When I think about Christmas, here's the emotions that come to mind. I'm going to count to three, and I just want you to yell out at me what kind of emotional state of being you would think of or what emotions you would think of when you think of the Christmas season. Ready? One, two, three. Okay, excitement. I heard that. I heard uh, quite a bit of peace. I think I, I heard like a fatigue somewhere out there. Um, I couldn't make out all of them. Uh, generally speaking, when people think of Christmas, uh, peace is one, love, joy. We put these words everywhere. We, we put them in lights, uh, those sorts of things. You know what emotional state of being is most prevalent at the first Christmas? Fear. Fright, dread, terror, the emotion that you see showing up over and over and over again as you read the Christmas accounts and as the characters of Christmas begin to step onto the scene, is that a fear? I, that's, that's surprising to me. If, if you read uh, Luke, that is the, the longer Christmas account, and primarily from Mary's perspective, you would find that Zacharias, the angel comes to him, and, and what he says to him is basically, don't be scared, fear not. You find that when Mary is visited by the angel, that he says, don't be scared, fear not. You find that both Zacharias and Mary doubt. They are scared. Zacharias, he's, he's mute because of it. Mary has to wrestle it out with the angel. You find when the, when the shepherds are visited, they're told, fear not. I get that one a little bit more because you're actually awake. It's night. And there was a host of them, like, poof. You know, I would have been scared. Uh, in a dream or something like that with Mary or Joseph, may, maybe a little less, would, would have felt a little bit more natural. But you find fear over and over and over again. And I want us to see this primarily in Matthew's account of this. Matthew's account is more from Joseph's perspective than Mary's perspective. But I want us to read these eight verses together and look at this from the angle of fear and what this meant inside of the Christmas story. Look at Matthew chapter number one. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles or it's there in your handout that's uh, tucked in your bulletin. Matthew 1, verse number 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. So here's how Christmas went down. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily or privately or quietly. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. She shall bring forth a son, and thou, Joseph, shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, took unto him his wife, and knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now the stage is set 
to be very clear that Joseph, in his mind at least, is not making an emotional decision in regard to Mary, but he's making a very calculated decision. You find that in verse 19, that he was uh, minded to do this. You find that in the next verse, that as he thought on these things. This is a very calculated decision by Joseph. And we're told that Joseph is just, meaning he's an observer and keeper of the law. Joseph knows that the law, according to Deuteronomy uh, 22 said that if you there was no sex before marriage but especially if you were engaged then, then it, was, it was especially kind of detrimental that you were a spouse you were committed uh, to your spouse that you could not with them who you were engaged to or with anyone else have any sort of sexual relations and, and Deuteronomy 22 said that this could even be deserving of death now we know in the first century that the Romans had put a stop to this and that they had told them no that you can't execute people for this uh, but we also know from history that they didn't always follow the Romans on this, and this happened. It wasn't outside of the question, especially when you're in Nazareth, sort of this backwoods town with not a lot of, of Roman eyes prying. And Joseph knows that this is not okay, and that at the same time, he's kind and he's fair. And he says that I am going to not make a public example of her, this isn't going to be, be a big forum in, in the middle of the town square with everyone looking and me making sure they know this wasn't me, this was on her, you know, I, I have my scruples, but I'll do it privately or quietly. I will, I will do this a bit under the radar. Now, inevitably, Mary's going to have some disgrace. It's, it's only a matter of time. There's, there's no way that he can avoid that, but he's thought it out. It's very rational, it's very calculated, and his decision is made. Jesus has come into his life, and Joseph is about to sweep away the coming Christ. He's about to arrange things so that this does not happen, and Jesus does not come into his life. And an angel shows up and identifies Joseph's driving emotion, not as extreme rationalism, but he identifies his driving emotion as fear. He says, Joseph... Your problem is you're afraid. And this morning, I want you to see that you can't be a Christian without overcoming many of the same fears that Joseph had to overcome. To allow Jesus into your life takes a tremendous amount of courage, and I'm here this morning to tell you to not be afraid. You say, Pastor, it's Christmas. Afraid of what? I'm glad you asked. Here's what you should not be afraid of. Don't be afraid of the scorn. Part of what is happening in this story is there is no doubt Mary is about to be disgraced. Joseph is going to try to keep it from being too severe, but this will happen eventually. She will be, uh, she will be known. She will be found out. Her tummy will show and people will know that she is not married and, and this will happen. Even if Joseph marries her now, expedite it, move up the wedding, marry her now, people aren't stupid. They're going to figure it out, right? We still do this today. Do a little bit of arithmetic. Uh, married on August 13th. First baby, February 13th. Carry one, six months. Yeah, okay, I see what happened there, right? People aren't going to be fooled by this. People are, are going to be aware of what happened. And Joseph knows that this is going to be, be shameful. This is going to be disgraceful. Sure, they'll tell the truth and they'll say that this is, this is from God, but this is not going to... to fit in the world's grid 
This isn't going to work out. People aren't going to buy this. God coming into Mary's life and impregnating her is not something that will be super believable. That Joseph, if he goes along with this, is either going to be thought to be complicit or gullible or just crazy. And Joseph knows that there's going to be some scorn and disdain that happens here. And if you think I'm making this up and the scriptures don't say this, then, then you probably haven't been with us through our John series because we've been walking through the book of John on most Sunday mornings and we've already hit John 6 and John 8 where this comes up. We're 30 years after Mary gives birth to Jesus. Jesus is arguing with the religious leaders and one of the things that the religious leaders love to do to Jesus when it, when it, the, it gets real tough and real heated is they'll jab at the origin of, his, uh, of him, of his birth. You find it in John 6 that they tell him, look, we, you, you're the bread of life. You know, he tells them that and they say, you're the bread of life. You came from God. God's your father. No, he's not. We know your father. Joseph is your daddy. They tell him that very clearly. We, we, okay, I know you have this story, okay? But Joseph's your dad, Jesus, okay? Don't, don't believe everything you hear. Your mama lied to you. You find it in John 8. It gets super tense in John 8 and they get mad at Jesus and they say, you have a devil and you know what? You're a Samaritan. Samaritan being you have one full-blooded Jewish parent and then you have a Gentile parent. It, it, is, it is definitely a point of attack at Jesus. We know your mom is Jewish, but who is your daddy really? Where did you come from? I know they say this or that, but, but who, there, there's still, 30 years later, rumors and talk and chatter and scorn and, and, and disdain coming on Mary, on Joseph, on Jesus. And the only way that Joseph is going to be rid of this, the only way that he can avoid this, is to get rid of her. If I marry her, this will be on me as well. If I divorce her, people will assume she was unfaithful, I was not, I had no part on this, that'll be on her head, not on mine, I'll go on with my life. But Joseph knows deep down, if I bring this child into my life, I will be knocked away, I will be marginalized to some degree, I will be ruined, people will think I'm crazy or gullible. Now listen, that is true of every Christian to some degree. If you want to bring Jesus into your life, especially if you're an adult, if you want Jesus to come into your life, it is extremely common for you to have a fear and for you to say, I'd like to follow Jesus, but I'm scared that they'll laugh at me. I'm scared that mom or dad or neighbor or coworker, whoever it is, I'm scared that they'll laugh at me. I'm scared that my classmates, I'm scared that the philosophy teacher, I'm, I'm, they'll think I'm crazy. They'll, they'll reject me. They'll scorn me. They'll mock me. Isn't this true of us? I mean, it doesn't matter how long you've been saved. I see this more and more in, in my life. But as a Christian, I say, you know what? I know Jesus. He loves me. He saved me. I'm going to heaven when I die. God is my father. I know that. He's forgiven me. And that does not mesh with the world's grid. Because the world says, if there is a God, the only people who would possibly know God is the people who are really good. God and God's blessings and his favor and his forgiveness in heaven, that's reserved for the moral elite. That's reserved for the people that are really good. So if you're saying, I know I'm going to heaven, I know Jesus loves me, I know that I know God, what you're saying is, I'm Billy Bible, I'm goody two-shoes, look at me, I'm morally superior to you. You know, get your nose stuck out of the air. 
And the Christian's response, if you understand the gospel, is no, 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 you misunderstand Jesus. You misunderstand the gospel. The opposite of that. I'm no better than you. I have issues and I have problems and I have sin and I have struggles and I have all this. And the world generally says, give me a break. Give me a break. Joseph knows that if he brings Jesus into his life, by and large, no matter what he says, no matter how he tries to argue, no matter what he tells people, people are going to say, give me a break. And you have to know that if Jesus is in your life, to some degree, you're going to have to swallow your fear and accept the scorn of the world. You're going to have to put up with, someday he'll grow up. It's a phase. She'll get out of it. Someday she'll realize the truth. You're going to have to put up with, before, I thought they were good spouse material, and they thought I was good spouse material. But then I told them I was following Jesus, and he had reorientated my life, and now that whole map just got ripped to shreds. Now they don't view me as someone I potentially want to marry or someone that I want to align my life with. You have to know that in your career, there is, it's not supposed to be this way, but I know there is tremendous danger that you will be sidelined or stiff-armed in your career because of your expressed faith as a Christian. There's always a danger that there are going to be those that are the experts in your field that, that will basically say, I know they're a good worker, but... I mean, they also believe in, I mean, Jesus and that he atoned for all their sins, that there's a heaven. I mean, do we give them an office next to the girl who believes there's Skittles at the end of the rainbow? Like, that's, that's a possibility. It's a possibility. Joseph knows when he <laughs> brings Jesus in that this, this is just going to, it's going to, there's going to be some chatter. There's no way around it. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like the psalmist. The psalmist said, I'm for peace but when I speak there for war, that I, I have good news and I have peace and I have the gospel, but they just don't quite understand it. Now, let me help you see the big picture. Those fears are not unfounded. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Those fears are real. That is, that is a possibility. But those fears are small potatoes compared to what God has in store for you if you allow him into your life. If you will let him into your life don't you see it in Mary and Joseph? The people that scorned, mocked, the people that, that, you know, made fun of them, that didn't believe them, whatever it was. Do we know their names? They're in the dust somewhere. We, we don't know their names. But here we are 2,000 years later, still talking about Mary, still talking about Joseph, still learning lessons from the life in Mary and Joseph. Why? Because they had the courage to swallow their fear, to jump over that hurdle and to say, I'm accepting Jesus and to allow Jesus to do something in their life. And the, and the scorn of the world is, is worth the gain of salvation. It is. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Secondly, I would say, and perhaps the most striking thing of this entire text that is oftentimes lost on the Christmas readers is don't be afraid of the surrender. Verses 24 and 25 tell us that Joseph accepts the challenge and that his life will be changed forever. We're also told, and this is, this is such a, an astounding statement, it, Mary is told this and Joseph is, is told this, that Joseph, the boy's coming, accept and marry her, and here's what I want you to do. You name him Jesus. Now, I don't know if you realize how radical that is because parents get to name their children. That's kind of inherent with being a parent is that you get to name your kids. If even, even not just kids, but companies or inventions, if you invent a computer, you can call it an apple if you want. That's your prerogative, right? 
If you start a company, you can call it Alcoa if you want. If, if you have a kid, you can call him Mephibosheth if you want. It's your choice, right? Why? Because you're in authority. You're in control. Uh, we have four children. We named all of our four children. Uh, we chose the names. Some of you weighed in. Uh, Willow, we actually crowdsourced with our group. Uh, we kind of, you know, we were polling and, and trying to figure out what to do. Some of you remember that if you were in our group. But we landed on Willow. We made the choice. If someone told me, here's what you should name your kid, I would say, this is none of your business. I'll name my kid what I want to name my kid, right? This is something that is inherent to the, to the authority figure. And you see this all through the Bible. A king will conquer another king, and the king will rename the defeated king. So tell him, I'm your authority. Here's what you're going by from now on. Uh, uh, Adam has the animals. God says, name them, Adam. Why? God needed an assist. He was tired. His, his brain was foggy. He couldn't think of any more names. No. Adam, you're the authority. You're the caretaker. You didn't even make the animals. You're not the creator of them, but you're the authority. You're in charge. You named them, right? Joseph is told very clearly by the angel, you don't have the naming rights. You're going you're gonna to step in and you're going to be part of this equation, but you're not in charge. You do what I say. You marry her. You name him this. You, and you find that Joseph does it, does it, does it. Hijacks his life. And doesn't even give him, you know, I was wanting to name my firstborn Joseph Jr. or whatever. Doesn't even give him that option. Just says you're going to call him Jesus. The best way I could put this is Joseph understood that if I accept Jesus in my life, I cannot accept him in my life on my terms. I don't get to dictate the terms. I don't get to choose. Put it this way. If Jesus comes into your life, he controls you. You don't control him. You follow his agenda, he doesn't follow yours. You march to the beat of his drum, he doesn't march to the beat of yours. That's how it works. That's how it's always worked. That's as old as Christmas. Whenever Jesus enters, it is very, very clear that he's not going to play second fiddle and that Joseph is not really in charge of the situation. And if you think that this is crazy or that's just, you know, in Joseph's life and not moving forward, I don't, I don't know if you've read the Gospels. Every time you see Jesus interacting with people, you find that, that he is the one who's, who's the, the mover and the shaker. Tim Keller, I think, said it best. He said, when you see Jesus in the Gospels, you see him putting people into motion. And he used this word picture. He said, he's like a giant billiard ball. Wherever he goes, he breaks up old patterns and he sends people off in new directions. Jesus is the cue ball that is moving the force and is constantly directing. He is the one that is in charge. And that's the Christmas message. When Jesus is born into your life, you lose control. Now, I, let's be honest, that's scary. That feels like suicide of the will. That's not something that you generally wake up in the morning and say, yippee skippy, I want to do this. But the reality is, if you want Jesus, that's, that's the Christmas message. The message of great joy, the message of good tidings, the message of peace is tied to that. You can't, you can't separate them. The problem for us, and, and the hurdle to jump over, is that more often than not, we think we are better at steering our life into joy, peace, fruitful living, than Jesus is at steering our life into joy and peace and fruitful living. I love the way Sinclair Ferguson put it. He's an old Scottish preacher. He said that there's a lie that has entered the bloodstream of humanity. He said, if you look at Genesis 3, the account of sin entering into the world, you find Adam and Eve, perfect, perfect garden. God says, do this, dress it, keep it, eat that, but hey, don't eat that. 
That tree, don't eat that one. Then the serpent comes along and says, hey, can you eat that one? No, can't eat that one. Why not? Well, God said it's off limits. And the serpent says to them, don't you realize? You eat that, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God. You'll see things clearly. There will be more potential in you that is realized. There, there will be... There'll be, there'll be something beautiful here. That's the best tree. Don't trust God. He's trying to keep you down. He's trying to hold back from you. He's, tr- he's trying to take what's best and not give it to you. And Sinclair said when, when, that, when that happened, when they chose to swallow that lie, when they chose to eat of the tree, he said that that lie entered into the bloodstream of humanity itself, that it buried itself deep down inside us and it warped us so that all of us, our working assumption is that if I give God control and I allow him to call the shots and I allow him to say, do all this but don't do that, then inevitably he's holding something back. He will take the best tree and and he'll save it for himself. He won't let me have it. He, He will... He will not let me get what I should have, what I really need, what I really want. That somehow deep inside of us, we operate on that assumption. And I can dare say in my own life, I have found that to be true. And I have found that to be true in Christians and non-Christians alike. That as I talk to people and dig down deeper, more often than not, it boils down to, I just don't know that if I give God control, that it will go better or as good as if I had control myself. If we, you tell me, if you thought he would do a better job managing your life than you would do managing your life, why didn't you turn it over to him sooner? Most of us, even after salvation, really struggle here. Struggle to say, okay, I will take my hands off and I will allow you control, but the truth is he will do a better job managing your life than you can. He, he has what I would call the adventure of lordship. He has an adventure and a life that is there for you that you will never see on your own, that will never be materialized on your own. There will be joy and peace and good news and glad tidings and great joy that comes to you. But you can't short circuit that. You, you can't get a shortcut to, to that good news and that great joy. You have to surrender. You have to. You have to say, Jesus, I'll take my hands off. And not only, I'll say this, I'll add another layer. Not only is it difficult because of your own heart, it's difficult because of culture. Self-denial is a dirty phrase in our culture anymore. That is taboo. What is in vogue is to thine own self be true, in the words of Shakespeare. Do what you want. Whatever you feel you are, whatever you feel you should do, whatever you feel you should be, pursue that. Realize your dreams. Chase your dreams. Find, find whatever it is that's grand out there and whatever you feel, pursue it and do it and don't let anyone hold you down and don't let anyone stop you and you just, whatever is in here, just, just let that guide you. Some of you are thinking, yeah, that, that actually doesn't sound too bad. I mean, I like tell my kids that all the time. The problem is that's very different than if you want to follow me, take up your cross and deny yourself. Which is what Jesus says to his followers. And it is, it is extremely unpalatable for most of us to say, you know what, I will surrender. And if we're honest with ourselves, 
we would say this, it takes tremendous courage to say, Jesus, you are in control fully, whatever you want. Marry her? Okay. Some of you are like, yeah, I, w- I do want to marry her, you know? I'll use that line, God told me marry you. Uh, no, don't do that. It's a terrible pickup line. But for Joseph, marry her? Yes. Name him this? Yes. You don't have the control. And you have to understand that he's not asking you to do something that he never did himself. I would say this, look at the cross. Do you not see him there sacrificing himself for you willingly? Look at Christmas. I know it's cute and cuddly and baby, goo goo gaga, but but don't you see him sacrificing himself for you willingly and freely? We just sang our last our congregation, we sang, was Heart to the Herald Angels sing. I was, uh, no, no shame on Matt. We sang two verses. Uh, I wish we would have sang three just because it's my favorite, okay? Selfishly, I wish we would have sang three because there's three verses to that and it's my favorite Christmas carol. But we did sing the verse that contains the line, mild he lays his glory by. Whatever that means, right? What does that mean? Mild means willingly, freely, voluntarily. He took his glory and put it to the side. The glory of heaven for sure, but the glory that was his, that that he actually lays aside glory, chooses to become man, submits himself to the Father and says, I will be born, I will die, I will raise again. I will mildly, voluntarily lay my glory to the side. I'll sacrifice. I'll do that. I'll submit. And, And he says to his followers, follow in my footsteps. Do as I have done. So have the courage. Don't be scared to surrender to God. I'm telling you as best I can. I got to move on, but I'm telling you as best I can in every way that I can, it's the best thing you can do for yourself. Thirdly, lastly, don't be afraid of salvation. We're told that they should name him Jesus. Why? Because that means he'll save his people from their sins. Now, it's, it's a little bit lost on us because it's gone through several language translations. So uh, Jesus is the English version of the Greek version of the Hebrew version of his name, okay? So the, the Hebrew version of Jesus' name is, uh, is Yeshua. It's, it's likely what the angel would have said. And, uh, and that means Yah or Yah meaning Lord and Shua meaning saves. It's the same name that Joshua would have had actually uh, if you don't take it through the translation barriers. But the name means the Lord saves. And he says you're going to name him this Yeshua or Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. That this name would make sense. And I would say that as a whole, the entire Christmas story teaches us, I mean, from the onset, that if you want Jesus in your life, you're going to have to have the courage to admit that you're a sinner. I know that that's not the, the most palatable thing to say in 2019, almost 2020, but let me clarify it. I don't mean you have to have the courage to admit that you've done some wrong at some point in time in your life. I have yet to come across someone who won't admit that. Everyone's pretty ready to say, you know what? Man, I did some things I'm not proud of. There are some skeletons in my closet. I wish I could have taken that one back. I was foolish. I was young. You know, I I misstepped here. Everyone's pretty ready to admit that. I don't find that to be a problem. But that's that's not what I'm talking about. I don't think it's what what the gospel talks about. To say that I need you to save me from my sins means, if you look at the Bible, that I admit God owes me nothing. I admit that I could not possibly live up to his standards. I do not love God with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind, not even close to it. I don't love my neighbor as myself and meet their needs with as much intensity as I meet my own needs. 
Therefore, I stand no chance of saving myself. I'm helpless. There's, there's no way that I, that I could possibly earn enough credit, that I, could, that I could forgive myself, that I could somehow coerce God to forgive me or, or be the best person. That, that there's, there's no way. It's not just I need a helping hand from God. I need to be rescued. I need a Savior. I need someone to sweep in and to pardon and to forgive because I'm guilty and I'm wrong and I can't do this. That's, that's what it means. And it takes a it takes a tremendous amount of courage to admit that. It doesn't take courage to know it because I think intuitively, deep down, we do know it. But also deep down, we have this motor of self-justification that turns and turns and turns and turns and, try, and tries to... We try to convince ourselves that we're not that bad. All of us have this little internal defense lawyer that loves to come to our rescue to excuse our wrong away, to excuse our sin away. I was just young. I didn't know. You would have done the same thing if you were in my shoes. It was just foolish. You know, to try to minimize the damage and soft pedal the wrong that we've done. And it's not just with our sin. That, that's us in general, is it not? That's why we hate feedback. Ask me to give you feedback. No problemo, Right? Here are the 18 things you did yesterday that I don't like. Here's what annoys me about you. Here's your terrible habits. Here, here's what you should change. If you do this, obviously your life would go better. Duh. Easy. Right? We can carve everybody else up at a moment's notice. Ask for some feedback for yourself or someone wants to give it to you. Not so easy. We resist that stuff. Because they're going to tell me something about myself that I'm not telling myself about myself. And I need to believe myself about myself. That little internal defense lawyer does a good job. I believe him. Right? This is why there's lots of people have a scale sitting in the bathroom. It's just like, it's, it's not threatening. It's just a piece of machinery. But no way, I'll step on it. It's going to talk back to me and tell me something that I don't want to hear. I don't want to know it. Right? Is this not us? It's the same thing with our sin. In some way, it takes courage to step on that scale. In some way, it takes courage to say, hey, would you give me some feedback? How can I be a better spouse? And in the same way, it takes a tremendous amount of courage. You have to swallow your fear to say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, I can't save myself. I can't do this. I'm trying. I'm working. I'm doing my best. And my best doesn't measure up. There's no way that it ever will. And you, I'm not asking you because you owe me. I'm asking you because you don't owe me. Give me your grace. Save me. I love what C.S. Lewis said about this. He said, I was set on being an atheist, a professor, a brilliant man, someone who was dead set, locked on being an atheist, but he said, the hounds of heaven were after me. I finally looked at my own heart, and there I found what appalled me. He says, I found a zoo of lust that would not be tamed in a bedlam of selfish ambition. Lewis said, I finally looked inside, and I found what I so despised and pointed out in everybody else that I hated. Mayhem. Desires and wrongs all over the place. Motives that were, that were misaligned. They were all over the place. I found it in me. Both, the, and I'm almost done, both the secular and the church celebrations of Christmas focus almost exclusively on light, happy, festivity, joy, merriment, which is why some of you are sitting there shell-shot this morning. Like, what is this? It's Christmas Sunday, Pastor. Lighten up a bit. Most all focus on that stuff. 
you know, Christ means peace on earth. But you have to understand that the joy and the peace on earth don't come outside of this. It has to come through this. In the same way that a surgeon will bring peace and harmony to your body, Jesus will bring peace and harmony to your life. But a surgeon has a scalpel. He has to wound you, and, and it gets tough for a little bit. But, but the end result is awesome. And in the same way, you have to admit it's painful and it's scary, but you have to admit, I need Jesus, and I cannot do this on my own. So, friend, here it is. Here it is. Are you scared that if you let Jesus into your life, people will laugh at you? Or, I'll say it this way, if you've already let Jesus in your life, are you scared to let him shine? Because people will laugh at you? The neighbor, the coworker, the friend, or whoever may, may ostracize you? I'd say this, are you scared that surrendering to him will produce this life where you have to pry blessings out of his begrudging fingers because he doesn't want to give you the best? Because he's not for you, it won't actually produce life, it won't be better than if you manage it yourself? Are you scared that if you're honest with yourself and God, that means that I have to admit I need to be saved from my sin? Can I steal a line from the angel? If you're scared, I would say this. Fear not. Don't be scared. It's not unique. Don't feel weird that you're scared. Joseph, Mary, Zacharias, shepherds, they all were. They all were. And they had to overcome that fear, but they found that when they did... When they accepted the message of no fear, that then they found that Jesus was in their life and it was the best it possibly could be. And I think, I take that back, I know that you'll find the same to be true for you. Pray with me.